Uh, I need to pause here just a moment, and uh, I don't know if this is a confession or a disclaimer or what this is, but anyway, you'll get the feel of it, and then I'll, then I'll go on. Uh, last week or during the week, one of you and someone, or, or one of you at home asked me to send you the link for an illustration I used in last week's message. In the meantime, I've had a lot of conversations, led a lot of emails, answered emails. In short, I have no idea who you are. So if you would, I want to honor that. In fact, I kind of guessed this week and sent the leak to someone that didn't ask for it, but they were thankful. If it was you, well, there you go. Well, that, that was easy. Thank you, Lee. Thank me if I remember to send it this week. <laughs> Last week, we started a message series in the book of First Peter. We're talking about having hope in a hostile world. Uh, this may sound familiar. If you were with us last summer in the book of Daniel, we talked about living for Christ in a hostile culture. And, and you're wondering, well, well, we're talking about that again. Well, the reason we're doing that is because the Bible talks about it that much and because Hostility toward Christians continues to advance and increase in our culture. This is a, a great need for us to understand that we can anticipate more and more pressure unless something changes, God willing something changes to turn the tide. Uh, we, we can anticipate more hostility toward Christians, and in particular as God wraps time up. So hostility continues to increase. The Family Research Council uh, just published their annual study of the rise of secularism and hostility toward Christians in America, and they noted that 2023 is on track to log the highest number of incidents of vandalism against churches in the last six years. Uh, according to their report, in the first quarter of this year, in the first quarter of this year, hostility against churches tripled from the same quarter last year. In the first quarter of this year, there were 69 acts of hostility against churches in 29 different states. That included 53 acts of vandalism, 10 um, arson attacks or attempts at arson, three gun-related incidents, three bomb threats, and two other incidents related to or against churches such as assaults. The Roman Catholic Church uh, is the primary target, but even so, evangelical Christians are becoming more and more a target. The author of the study for the Family Research Council said, as secularism increases, people just understand religion less and less. In other words, they don't really know what we believe or who we are. Uh, they just take their cues from the media who are traditionally opposed to people of faith. And the author went on to say they have less, uh, less of respect for religion than they have in the last decades. She also pinpointed a conflict between Christianity and what she called secular dogmas. And this is an important point. Just because you're not a religious person doesn't mean you are not dogmatic or that you don't have beliefs that are entrenched in your worldview. Secular dogmas, she said, are rooted in, in the sexual revolution, abortion, same-sex marriage, and, and LGBTQ issues. All of these, she said, are increasingly in conflict with core Christian teachings and core beliefs. So the left is getting increasingly intolerant. These are her words of Christianity for this reason. And she said, I think we're seeing 
uh, that even being represented physically through physical attacks on churches. In other words, what you believe dictates how you behave. And if people believe that Christians are the problem, they will become increasingly hostile toward Christians, churches, and Christianity, which, which is what we are seeing. Now, let that sink in. In just the last year, from, one, from January, February, March of 2022 to this past quarter, hostility toward Christians and churches in America has tripled. Tripled. So unless something dramatically changes to turn that tide back, we can anticipate this hostility growing. The question is, how do we live? How do we live for Christ in our generation, in what's happening in our culture? How are you faithful for Christ no matter what happens in our generation, in our culture? And how do you pass along fidelity to Christ to the next generation, the next believers, the next leaders and servants in the church? The letter of 1 Peter, as you'll recall from last week, is written to believers uh, at the outset of the persecution, government-sponsored persecution under Emperor Nero. It was A.D. 64. And he specifically writes his letter to believers who uh, were expelled from or fled from the city of Rome, and they fled to Asia Minor for the sake of their lives. And you'll also recall that this is the same persecution that just a few years after Peter wrote this letter, this is the same persecution under which he would be executed and the Apostle Paul would be executed. So this is a growing, fast-moving persecution. But he writes these, this letter to Christians who have been dispersed. That's the biblical term and the Jewish term, dispersed throughout the empire, but in particular they have fled to Asia Minor. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. The interesting thing, by the way, of the sentences we're going to be studying this week and next week is they actually comprise one sentence in Peter's free-flowing, fast-thinking. In the original language, this was one sentence. And uh, thankfully, our English translators provided things like periods and commas and, and beginnings that, that to help us study it. And that's why those those, uh, that punctuation is there for us. But what he said is preserved exactly the way that he said it. Now, before we read this, I want you to think for just a minute like a first century Christian under persecution. Remember, uh, we're, we're accustomed to the Bible, and we're, we're reading the New Testament, and we're accustomed to Paul teaching about grace and about law, and we're, we're accustomed to Peter, the apostle. But remember, the first century Christians were just learning what it meant to be a Christian. So being expelled in the first persecution that they had experienced, being, being expelled from Rome and, and fleeing for their lives and settling in new places, they probably had questions. Questions like, does God know where I am now? If I was saved and baptized in a church fellowship in Rome and I flee to Asia Minor, does God know where I am? Does God still care for me? Does that change my salvation in any way? And what if, what if I under, uh, 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 undergo persecution in Asia Minor? What if I have to flee again? Does that change my salvation in any way? And I've left my home. And many of them have left their families and left their jobs and left their businesses. Will God take care of me? Imagine, seasoned adults, imagine that the life you built, the home you've lived in for decades, suddenly is taken from you by government persecution, and you have to flee. 
What's left for you? Does God care? Remember the fundamental principle we started with last week. It's not where you are that matters. It's who you are that matters. And Peter continues to focus in on that basic principle as once again he fortifies the identity of believers. He reminds them and fortifies their identity in Christ that know what matters most is who you are, not where you are. And God knows who you are because God has saved you in Christ. Who you are doesn't change that. Excuse me, where you are doesn't change that. Who you are is what matters most. So look at this with me. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week reading at verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new hope, excuse me, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. If you're suffering grief in various trials, maybe you're suffering as sickness, maybe you're suffering as grief and loss, maybe you're suffering as dis being displaced, maybe your suffering is some kind of ridicule or persecution for your faith. Verse 6, Peter says you can rejoice. You have reasons to rejoice. He starts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That first phrase was very Jewish, just like Peter was, Jew, was a Jew. Blessed be our God and Father. He had grown up saying that, learning that, receiving blessing and giving blessing to God the Father. That was not unusual for a Jew. What was unusual is now as a Christian, he realizes Jesus Christ is God as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, who walked with Jesus on the earth, who was friends with Jesus, who saw Jesus crucified and saw the empty tomb and saw the resurrected Lord. Peter, who lived three years, questioned Jesus, ate with Jesus, now says he is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. He is my Lord, Peter says. But Peter understood who Jesus was. And it's because of that he grasps, and notice the character trait of God that's at the forefront, the mercy of God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. We have been born again. It's because of his mercy, not because we deserved it. And Peter, of all people, would know he didn't deserve the grace of God in Christ. He didn't deserve to be born again in Christ. But he has been born again in Christ. And because he has a new birth, a new life in Christ, tied intimately to the resurrection of God in Jesus Christ, he can say to all believers everywhere, Christ has done this for you. And there are things in your life that despite the suffering and pain, ridicule, heartache, persecution, there are things that will never change. And it starts with who you are in Christ. It's because of the mercy of God you're in Christ. So it's because of the mercy of, Christ you, of God you are tied to Christ and that will not change. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever loss you have in your life, whatever confusion or uncertainty there might be, remember, who you are in Christ does not change. The circumstances cannot change that because it's God's mercy, not you. You didn't earn it. It's God's mercy. Because of him you were born again in Christ. So Peter then 
focuses in on fortifying the identity of, of all believers everywhere in Christ. And when he does that, he says there are three things that we can know for sure. If you are born again in Christ and you know that you are, there are three things that you can know for sure. Wherever you are, this is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. For example, first he says, if you're born again in Christ by the mercy of God and you know that you are, you and I both, we know that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. This is really the theme of the whole letter. It's exciting. We have a living hope, Peter says. And what would be so exciting about that? Well, think about the nature of hope in this life. See, hope only lasts as long in this life as whatever we're hoping for might last. Well, let me give you an example. We have, as you're aware, the Who's Your One wall in the hallway at the back. I hope you put a name of somebody there you're praying for. You're going to have a gospel conversation. And let's say I woke up this morning and I said to myself, and maybe even, even said out loud, I hope 38 people this Sunday after church will go put a name on the Who's Your One wall. I hope that's what they do. And I might even ask you to do that, which, by the way, I'm doing. But I hope 38 of you, and th in this room right here, so many more than 38 people, surely 38 people that have not yet put their name, put a name on the Who's Your One wall, can do that after church today. I hope you do. Now, that hope lasts as long as it takes for 38 people to go put a name. Tomorrow, I come into the church, and I go in there, and maybe 37 people did it. It's no longer hope, it's reality. It's a fact. Okay, my hope fell short, 37 people did it, 3 people did it, 5 people did it, 40 people did it, it exceeded my hope. But my hope has an expiration. It lasts only as long as it takes 38 people to put something on that wall. The Apostle Peter knew this even better. His hope lasted to the day of the crucifixion. He stood there and he watched his Lord and Savior and friend crucified and died on the cross for three and a half years. He had had hope in Christ. He believed Jesus would be the Messiah. And there he was dying on the cross. Then something happened. On the third day, hope was reborn. And he came to understand that because of the resurrection of Christ, our hope doesn't have an expiration. Our hope in Christ, your hope in God, is a living hope. It will live eternally because Christ has risen from the grave. When you put your hope of your salvation, your hope of tomorrow, your hope of eternity in Christ and his resurrection, that's a living hope. And when, he, when you were reborn in Christ, that's an eternal life attached to to his hope. The Apostle Paul would write in the book of Romans, and that hope, that hope does not disappoint. It's poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. God guarantees that hope. And we all know we have this hope. We all know there's no it is a living hope, not because we're that good. Certainly this life will run out one day, but our hope does not. Our hope lives with Christ and in his resurrection. Imagine those first believers fleeing from their homes. Is there hope? 
Is there hope? And, and if I arrive to Asia Minor and I, and, I, and I plant myself there and I start over there and the, and, the, and the Romans don't chase me there because I'm a Christian, do I have hope? My hope has an expiration. and It's only going to last until they catch up with me. Peter says, oh, no, no. Your hope is a living hope. And what if I'm sick and afflicted? What if I'm, I'm terminally ill? What if I, my hope only lasts as long as the medication until it runs out? No, no, no. Your hope is a living hope. It's not tied to this world. It's reborn in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. So this one thing we know for sure, we have a living hope because our Savior is alive and we have been born again in Jesus Christ. Then Peter says, second, here's another thing that you know for sure. No matter where you are or what you're going through, you have an eternal inheritance in Christ. For all of you Christians that fled Rome to Asia Minor, you left your homes behind, you had built up your savings, you had built up your businesses, your homes had been there, that was the inheritance you had planned to pass down to your family. That was what you thought you were going to receive, and now it's gone. You're broke, you're destitute, you're fleeing from your homes. And you might wonder, what happened to our inheritance? Peter says, oh, you can know this. You have an eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. Peter, being a Jewish man who had come to Christ, who was now fully invested in, in Jesus and understood that Christ was the Messiah and his Savior, his Lord, and his God, would also see something else in this. See, the Jews had been promised an inheritance, that is, the land. The promised land was their inheritance because they were the chosen people of God. And Peter and other believers came to understand, uh, especially if they were Jewish believers, that that promised land foreshadowed God's eternal inheritance for them. Uh, look at it this way. Uh, if you've ever been homesick, you've traveled maybe, or you've been away from home and you thought to yourself, maybe you're a college student, you think to yourself, I can't wait to get home. There's a little bit of homesickness there. Because God's woven into us a desire to be in this place called home. And yet we spend a good bit of our time on planet Earth trying to build a home, trying to have a home. Why do we do that? Because we're not home yet. We're eternally connected to the inheritance that Christ has for us. And Peter describes this inheritance, this internal, eternal inheritance we have in Christ. He describes it three ways. First of all, it's imperishable. It's imperishable, meaning literally it won't vanish. It won't go away. It will never perish. Obviously, that's what it means. Your inheritance on earth, you can spend it. You can squander it like the prodigal son. You can intentionally give it away. It might burn up. It might get stolen. A lot of things could happen to your inheritance on earth. Whether it's money, whether it's land, whether it's home, a lot of things could happen to it. But the one thing that definitely will happen is it will not outlast time and go with you into eternity. It's perishable. In some respect, your, your earthly inheritance just won't last. But your inheritance in Christ is eternal. Do you know the Bible teaches that when you were born again in Christ, you became an, a co-heir with him of his estate. And Peter clarifies that to mean this inheritance, uh, uh, this eternal inheritance is 
in Christ forever. Just as he rose from the grave, it's imperishable. He says also along with that, the the third thing to know about this is that it's undefiled. It's undefiled. Uh, Very literally, it will not spoil. It's unblemished. It's perfect. And this matters because it means your inheritance in Christ is acceptable to the Father. That's why it's in Christ. That's why it doesn't depend on you and how good you are. Your inheritance in Christ is acceptable to the Father. It's morally pure. It's undefiled. Because it's in Christ. So it's imperishable. It's undefiled. And then he says it's unfading. It's unfading. That that means it doesn't age. Uh, Your inheritance in Christ, your place in heaven, is exactly now the way it will always be. So while we're on earth and we're aging, and, and we're deteriorating, no offense, just look in the mirror, While that's happening, your inheritance in Christ tied to his resurrection is eternal and stay that way until you receive it and then after that it stays the same way. Your salvation connects you. You're born again in Christ. That gives you that inheritance in Christ. And then Peter says that God guards this for you. The term translates a word that means he fortifies it. Look at it this way. God has your inheritance in Christ locked away in a vault in glory so you will be assured to receive it. There's nothing that will change that on planet earth. If you're displaced, if you're sick, if you're going through hard times, listen, even if sometimes you doubt and your faith struggles, God says, here's one thing you can know for sure. Your inheritance in Christ is locked away. God is guarding that for you. The contrast between the lives we live here and the inheritance we think we build up here and what God has secured for us is a staggering contrast. Let me put it this way. Uh, Last weekend, uh, I arrived home from Chapel Hill. Went up to UNC to see Brother Buddy and Amy Uh, Friday, spent the night, came back over to the hospital Saturday, then I came home Saturday. And when I got home, my wife and I discovered a problem in the house. We had a water leak. And the water leak evidently had been going on for a while, somewhere in the kitchen, had found its way into the living room by that time. That's how we discovered it. Isn't that special? So the, the short version is, plumber comes over Monday, my nephew, Luke Weathers, this is a shout out, shameless plug if you need a plumber, comes over, finds the leak, caps it off, says you, you need to get some, you got water, you got water, you know. So we've got insurance stuff going on, we've got serve pro stuff going on, it's just going to be so special. In the middle of all of that, Saturday evening, Amy Norris texted me and said, Buddy's gone home. From the ICU at UNC Hospital, the man who had fought for his life, literally for years, double lung transplant, kidney issues, back problems, and surgeries, the list goes on and on, had finally departed from the ICU at Chapel Hill. 
while we were here wrestling with a deteriorating house, water problems invading a home that clearly is not imperishable, definitely not undefiled, and looks like it might be fading away, Buddy arrived home to receive his inheritance. He shed that earthly corruptible body. He arrived home as singing in glory. His Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, oh, he gets it. Better than we can yet. But he gets it because his inheritance that he embraced, that imperishable, eternal, undefiled, perfect, never fading gift from God in Jesus Christ. See the difference? And if you've been born again in Christ, you can anticipate that too. Whatever's going on in this life, you have an eternal inheritance in Christ. Then one more thing. Peter says, here's another thing we know for sure. We have a ready salvation. A ready salvation. That sounds a little odd in a way to, to most of us. We don't think of our salvation as a ready salvation. Look at verse 5. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, most of the time we think of salvation as an event. It happens one time. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you received Him as your Savior, followed Him as your Lord, you were saved. And many of us think our, the only thing that happens differently than after that is we come to church if we want to. And hopefully we have a secure place in heaven. Otherwise, maybe not a whole lot changes in our lives. Of course, that's not God's intention at all. Because once we become a follower of Christ, he should show through us. Or we become disciples of his. He starts changing us, making us more like Christ. And that's why the Bible actually views your salvation not as a one-time event, but as a process. The Bible teaches, yes, you are saved, but you are being saved and you will be saved. It's a process that starts with your commitment to Christ, your confession of your sin, repentance of your sin, and your commitment to Jesus Christ. Starts that process. And what Peter means here by a, a, a salvation ready to be revealed, here's what he's talking about. You and I are just on the cusp of knowing what our salvation is all about. We're just barely there. We're barely getting it. And what Christ has done for you, your salvation on the cross, his, your salvation through trusting him and his death on the cross, we're, we're, we can only imagine what that salvation is and what it's going to be like. Ready to be revealed means it's prepared and being prepared. It's similar to what Jesus meant in John 14 when he said, I go and prepare a place for you. It's under construction in a very real way. And he's preparing it in you and in eternity to be revealed. Now, what does that mean? That means, listen, believer in Christ, when you go home to be with the Lord, one day, someday, when all of us gather at the throne of God, God is going to glorify Jesus Christ by revealing your salvation to all the saints in glory. He's going to point at you who thought you had a little bitty frustrating, sick life decaying on planet Earth. He's going to point at you and say, Jesus died for you, and you're here. Not because you deserve it, but because of God's great mercy and Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, you're here. And the whole universe will say, he's here, she's here. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Deborah, Rahab, Sarah, 
David, Peter, Paul, Jacob, all of them will rally up and God will say, look, he's here because of Christ. She's here because of Christ. And Christ will be glorified for his salvation. Aren't you glad that depends on him and not on us? Uh, would you agree we'd mess it up if it was dependent on us? Aren't you glad it's because of his mercy? Aren't you glad for that? And then there's that believer. Somewhere out there, that's, there's that believer who says, I don't know. Even though, Peter, you say, you rejoice in this, in your suffering, in your persecution, rejoice in this because you are forever eternally tied in your salvation to Christ. Maybe there's that one who says, I, I'm not sure. What if I do mess it up? So Peter says, no, listen. God the Father himself guards you. As you go through this life, you're on a trajectory to glory. And God is guarding you. Even when you struggle, even when you suffer, even when you doubt, God is guarding you. You remember where we read that he kept or guarded your inheritance, your eternal, eternal inheritance. That means it's locked away in the fortress of God. The word in verse 5 that says he's guarding you is a bit different. It doesn't mean you're in a fortress. It means that he is with you as you travel through this life. Look at it this way. Uh, everyone knows that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April 1865. What you may not know is that was not the first attempt on his life. In fact, in 1864, animosity toward Abraham Lincoln had grown exponentially and there were regular attempts or threats on his life and people would send him letters threatening him his life and one time someone shot at him and barely missed him from out of the bushes. Uh, so those in, in the government decided he probably could use some protection, right? Now at the same time a different perspective changed. And there were those who would say, rather than assassinate Lincoln, why don't we abduct him? We'll abduct, abduct Abraham Lincoln, take him deep into Confederate territory, and force the Union to surrender. That was the thinking. And a man named Thomas Conrad actually tried it. He, he got three of his allies, and they snuck into Washington. Now, Abraham Lincoln was known for having a habit. Uh, an evening, he would ride over to uh, the old soldier's house, and that's where he would spend the night, especially on warm summer evenings and in the fall. That's where he liked to go, and often Mary Todd Lincoln would be with him in a carriage, but more often he'd be alone on horseback. So they thought that's the perfect way to abduct him. No one will know. So Thomas Conrad and his cohorts got together, and one night they were hiding in the bushes. It was September 1864. They were hiding in the bushes, and they were waiting for Lincoln to ride by, and they were going to leap out, and they were going to grab him and abduct him. And just then they heard him coming and the clomping of horse hooves as he trotted along. But they heard something else they didn't quite expect. There was, it was more than one horse. <laughs> and not only was there more than one horse, there was the very distinct rattling of sabers alongside the president. And they looked out from the bushes and there were four armed guards encircling the president so he could get home safely. Get the picture? And God says, listen, you're more valuable than the President of the United States. I'm going to make sure you get home safely. God himself guards you in your salvation. 
and he's going to make sure you get home. Do you know there is no other religion, faith, cult, belief, worldview that can say what we can say. We have an eternal inheritance, a living hope, and a ready salvation to be revealed. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Not because of any other belief, any other religious leader. No one else has risen from the grave and no other resurrected life did you receive but that of Christ. And you are tied forever to him. So listen, believer, whatever you're going through, whatever struggles, whatever real ridicule, persecution might grow, remember it's not where you are or what you're going through, it's who you are that matters. And God has a place for you that he has established in eternity and he will make sure you get home safely to him. And maybe you're in this room or you're at home and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You're living in this perishable world, this decaying place, and you know it's true. And you wonder if there is a hope beyond this. Is there a living hope? Is there an, an eternal inheritance? Or do you just have to count on what you can get here? Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. God raised him from the grave. And when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you confess and repent of your sin, trust him as your Savior, you are intimately born again in Christ and tied to his resurrection for eternal life. And that's good news. And the best news is, he did it by his mercy. Oh, he already knows you didn't deserve it. He did it because he loves you. And he is a holy God who came to save you. If you've never trusted Christ, will you do that today? Will you do that today? Bow your heads and close your eyes here and at home. I'm going to pray for us first. Believers, I'm going to pray for you that you would be reignited in your hope in Christ, that you realize this morning what God has done for you. And if you've been worrying or wilting or withering a bit, that you would again be reignited in your hope in Christ. And I'm going to pray for you who may have never trusted Christ as your Savior. Today you would say, yes, I will follow Christ. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Our Heavenly Father, God, you see us in this place and you know our hearts here and at home. God, you know exactly who we are, what we've been going through. You know, Father, if we have faltered or failed to follow you, God, you know that. Father, if we've been weak in our faith, if we've withered a bit, you know that. And God, you know that sometimes in, in desperation we try to cling to this life and what inheritance we might have here. You know that. But God, you know just as well as we do, this life is passing away. And our hope and our eternity is in Christ. I pray for believers here, God. First, we praise you and thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. God, forgive us for we have doubted that. Reignite in us a passion, a desire to serve and to follow Christ. Whatever we're going through, God, wherever we are, remind us, Father, what matters is who we are in Christ. And God, I pray for those in-house or at home, maybe that one or two, that today they would say yes to Jesus Christ, to trust Him as their Savior. And they would pray a prayer of confession of sin. They would pray a prayer of confessing their faith in Christ and pray that prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. I confess to you, God, that I'm a sinner. And I know that I cannot save myself. I'm just not that good. But I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And God, I believe you've raised him from the grave and he's alive today. And all my hope is in Christ. So dear Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and repent of my sin and put all my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone 
to save me. And from this point forward, I will follow Christ. Father, for those who prayed this morning, God, I pray that this would be a turning point in our lives in following Christ. We would remember who we are in Christ and we would follow Jesus. God, for those who may have prayed to trust Jesus for the first time, I pray today they'd follow through with that commitment. For those maybe who have trusted Christ but never been baptized, I pray they would follow through in that commitment and make that decision today. Maybe there's some who need to make that step of faith to join fellowship with First Baptist Church. May we do that today as well. God, be at work here and in our homes, in our hearts, Father, wherever we are, that we would follow through in those decisions for Christ today. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.